So welcome to the class, everybody. I'm going to mute everybody at this point. And please allow me to unmute you. I'll let you guys talk later. We're going to have begin the class with a little debate. Let's see. Let's see. I don't know what I did, but I lost you. Can you hear me now, Russell? I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, good. Okay. We're going to start this with a nagoon. So listen. So that was a nagoon. And the nagoon comes from more of a Hasidic background. When can you think, if, if you thought back, when was the first time you actually heard a nagoon in the synagogue? My guess is that it would be somewhere in the 70s, because I know it wasn't in the 50s or before. What we're gonna do today is we're gonna take a look at the innovations and the changes that have happened in Jewish music from say the 1950s through today in the 21st century. And we're gonna take a look at the sociological impacts, what has affected Jewish music. As far back as the 16th century, Jewish music has adapted and transformed itself to meet the, um, to the change in musical interests and tastes of the world around it. And today is no exception. Synagogue music, however, there's been a great debate surrounding synagogue music. So I'm going to share my screen now. We're going to start with this. There it is. Changing. Second, I also have to share computer sound, and there we go. So, we're going to look at the trends and the innovations in Jewish music. The great debate. What is the great debate? As far as Jewish music goes, the great debate has been art music versus communal, communal participation music. Now, art music was more of, let's say, from the 1950s in the synagogue. Music was more, shall we say, performance-oriented. So if we take a look at the differences between art music and the communal participation music, let's start with that debate. On the art music side, they say that music at the synagogue should represent, reflect, and elevate the beauty of Shabbat or holiday worship. It should be sophisticated and inspiring, elevating the heart and soul. And if you take a look at the communal participation music, those are the same on both sides. Both sides of this debate say that 
music of the synagogue needs to reflect the holiness of the holiday or of the service, and it should be sophisticated, something that will elevate the heart and soul. But here it diverges. Prayer is an art form, and art can also be prayer. As with any art form, such as poetry, literature, architecture, and even music, we should bring our greatest talents and training to create the most beautiful expression of prayer we can. The music of the synagogue should be reflective and responsive to the nusach of the various holidays. And nusach is that sound or the, the different sounds of the different parts of the prayers. It comes from our Eastern European Ashkenazic tradition at least the, the new stuff that we're familiar with in the United States. And it is, there's a specific sound or specific musical motifs that go along with each prayer service and even that will, which will reflect the day, the time of the day, the holiday, whether it's Shabbat or the high holidays or the three festivals, there's a specific sound to each of those prayer services. And the people on one side, the art music, say that that should be responsive and reflective of that. If it's Shabbat morning, we should sing the music that sounds like Shabbat morning. Um, music should also invite the listening worshiper to moments of reflection and meditation. The responsibility for curating, selecting, and composing the music of the synagogue lies with the cantor. And as far as tradition goes, it should be, our tradition says it should be a connection to the past and a reverence for past Jewish music. That is, this would have been a handout if we were in a classroom together, but I'm doing it this way for right now. So those are the arguments for the art music side. Then there has arisen the communal, communal participation side. They say that music at the synagogue should invite congregational participation, that music at the synagogue must be in a key that everybody can sing, not just those people in a paid professional choir, quartet, or even the cantor, that the music of the synagogue should connect worshipers to the broader Jewish and secular world, so it should incorporate music sung in Jewish camps. It should incorporate powerful and meaningful secular music as well. The responsibility for curating the music resides with the cantor, but the cantor's job has changed. The cantor should now keep an ear open to various resources in the congregation, people who play instruments, people who like to sing, those with musical skills. And as far as tradition goes, it can go back at least two centuries, but it's, no, that's wrong. The importance of tradition for at least the past two centuries, there has been a discussion of how to include the congregation in singing. So we need to renew, be up to date and be contemporary. So some of those on either side can mesh together and some are in direct opposition. So now I'm gonna open up the floor and I would like to know if people would like to say anything. Um, let me get to, hold on, I gotta figure out how to, ah, there we go. Does anybody, would anyone like to say anything? I'm gonna unmute people and let them talk. Does anybody have, let's, let's have a little um, conversation. I, I think music 
adds to the service. It uh, brings a deeper meaning to a lot of the prayers. Okay. So would you say that you think you should be, that this is, that singing or participation is important? Or would you rather sit and listen? It, I think it's important. I think when we sing together, some of the prayers we do together, like me, Kamoka, and some of the others, I think the congregation gets more involved that way rather than just uh, listening to it being read to us. Okay. Has a deeper meaning to me. Yeah, I think I think singing is very important. We participate. Okay, Carlin, you look like you wanted to say something. <laughs> well, I think that I think that combining the two is probably the best, but there's a focus these days to really bring people into the synagogue and have them participate. And I think that's more of the focus right now, even though you can still make it beautiful and, and elevate it to an art. So then, you're saying that art music, it elevates it to an art, but communal singing doesn't? No, I think that um, I think that communal singing brings warmth and joy, and not necessarily to an art form. But that's all good. Okay. This is a debate. Please go back and forth. There is no right or wrong answer here. There isn't. There are there are pros and cons on both sides of this debate, and this debate has been going on for the past fifty years. And still there are congregations where you go and you listen and the cantor sings and you can join in sometimes, but it's pretty much the cantor or the choir. They still exist. And the other side where there are people where they don't want a cantor or a choir, they just want people to all sing together. And people, some people fall very strongly on one side or the other. So go ahead. Well, I think I'm in the middle because I love them both. And I think that our also. temple focuses on both. I agree. I think that um, I think there, there are times with, within each service that it needs to be more of an art form where it's, it's basically the cantor uh, speaking to us individually. And then I think there are times that require participation. Um, where the, the congregation feels like we're, we're a part of the service and of what is being sung and what we're celebrating or um, worshiping for. Why do you think that the shift happened? Why do you think that people all of a sudden wanted to start singing? For me, well, it's, it's personal it's participation. They want to participate in the service. They want to feel connected to the service and not just sit and listen. Why? What has happened in our world over the past 50 years that would make people want to do this? Because for me, a long time, it wasn't that way. To me, it's a deeper... It me, the service means more when I participate. Okay. I also think that um, our generation is a camp generation. And we're used to singing and clapping hands and participating. And we want that in our religious temple life. 
That's very key. Yes, you're right. Is Nancy here? Can you hear me? Yes, I hear Nancy. Interestingly, that that is true. Also, the uh, the opposite happened. A lot of people did not want anything to do with being Jewish anymore because of what happened in the Holocaust. So it, you're right. That's one of the that's one of the shifts that's happened to us. What else happened in the past fifty years that might have something to do with this? Something kind of important happened over the past fifty years or sixty years. Israel, Israel. That's right. I mean, Israel was a big, huge event. To the, to, it was so important, in fact, that we adopted the way to read Hebrew and the way to speak Hebrew to the Israeli pronunciation as opposed to the Ashkenazi pronunciation that we had done for many, many, many decades, hundreds of years. So Israel has had a profound influence on Jewish music. What else has happened over the past, say, 10, 15, 20 years that has greatly affected how we listen to, write, and perform Jewish music? The internet and social media. The internet, technology. The very Television. Fact, television. The very Both fact that, that we are we are right now sitting here in our homes having a lesson is due to technology and the internet. And this is something that is incredibly important and we're gonna take a look at different groups now that have contributed. So some of the questions that we've just been looking at and I want you to continue thinking about as we go through this course, what historical and sociological factors have influenced the creation, the distribution, and the engagement with Jewish music at the beginning of the 21st century. What do these trends and innovations of 21st century Jewish music say about us as 21st century Jews? How has technology changed the creation and distribution of Jewish music in the 21st century? And what are the boundaries if any, between liturgical and concert music. Have they changed? So we're gonna start and take a look at this. Okay, so you should know, I'll see that in a second. Let me move this back up, I made it there. Now I can see my screen. All right, there we go. All right, first of all, what we're going to do is we are going to listen to some music both then and now. These are some selections of reform liturgical music that you would have heard in the synagogue 60 years ago. And, let, and then we're gonna compare them to what you might hear today. So first we're going to listen to Alejado D by Isidore Fried. If you're not sure who Isidore Fried is, if I were to sing, Mi hija mocha ba'eli madonai, mi hija mocha nehedar ba'kodesh. Does that sound familiar? 
-hmm. Okay, that's Isidore Fried. And he was, he did not start out as a composer of Jewish music. He started out as a composer of regular music. But when he took a job in a synagogue, all of a sudden he began to write music for, for the synagogue. And this was back in the 1940s, 50s. So here we go. We're going to listen to El Chadodi that you would have heard 60 years ago. Could everybody hear? Mm -hmm. yes. Good. Whoops. Okay. Now, let's take a listen to something by Craig Taubman. We know Craig Taubman. He was born in Tennessee. He is, along with Rabbi David Wolpe, the co-creator of the Friday Night Live that was at, I believe, the beginning night. I have to go look that up. I forgot the date. But any event, it's it was it was only about 20 years ago. I mean, oh my gosh, only about 20 years ago that this happened. Let's listen to this. <laughs> So, that's a little different, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. So, I, each of those composers, each of those lechadodis that we heard, are a result of the environment in which that composer was trained and exposed. With Isidore Fried, he studied composition in Paris with Nalia Boulanger, he wrote piano works, he wrote um, orchestral works, he was involved in choirs and large choirs within the larger cities of Europe and the United States, and his training was predominantly classical. And that's where his music, that's what he wrote. Craig Taubman, on the other hand, has not only written Jewish music, but he has written music that has um, 
Fox Children's series. He's written music for HBO series, for movies. He's written music in Hollywood. I mean, his musical surrounding has been more broad or more in the secular themes. He also was a song leader at Ramah, one of the camps. So he had a lot of that camp influence as well. Two different experiences, two different Lachadodis. Let's take a, oops, let's take a listen here. Max Helfman is considered by many cantors to be the composer of composers. Again, this is somebody who was raised, he was born in Poland. His Jewish uh, music not only was liturgical, but he took a lot of secular texts and set them to music. So let's take a look at this. This is his, oops, this is, who is like unto thee? A translation of Micha Mocha in set in English. something that nobody in the congregation could even think about approaching to sing. That would take me a while to learn. That's a professional choir, for sure, and a professional singer for the cantor. Let's take a look at somebody else who wrote more contemporary musical things in English. Debbie Friedman, um, she's generally credited as having introduced to American synagogues a folk song type of music. Again, we have to look at their musical influences, who influenced these composers. Let's listen to Debbie's. This is her setting of Micha Mocha, again. a more contemporary one and one that we do all the time. Debbie's musical influence was 
Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary, camp, guitar. She picked up her guitar. She started to she taught herself. She learned, she sang, she was in camp, and she created this entire movement right around the time of probably about the same as Craig Taubman a little bit earlier. So different composers, different influences, the music that they created. Now, let's take a look at some music that was more, let's say, secular in nature. 60 years ago, this is what you probably heard. I know, for one, heard this in my synagogue when I was growing up. <laughs> Right? When I was a kid, it was saying, let's say, let's say, let's say, now come into the fields and let's begin to work the land. Totally Israel. But this was this, this was the music that that had I had access to iPods and MP3 and everything. Then this is what I would have listened to. And I did listen to it. Again, another one that I listened to as a kid. This land is your land, and this land is my land. California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. So we all know that one. And this is something they still sing in preschool, and they still sing at the camps. But this was the music of the time. This was what we turned on the radio, that's what you heard. Compare that now with today. This is what we're gonna hear if we listen to a radio station or MP3, YouTube, Spotify, whatever. Everybody say oh, oh, oh yeah, boy. And I know they still play that at the camps and all the, and all the nifty conventions and things. This type, this is Rick Recht. Rick Recht is, was born and raised, still alive, still very much 
a mover in the Jewish music scene in St. Louis, Missouri. He developed a strong Jewish identity attending traditional congregation, a conservative synagogue. In high school, Recht joined Nifty, where he was deeply influenced by the Jewish music that he heard. After graduating from USC in the Music Institute, he hit the road touring nationwide from LA to New York, playing at clubs, colleges, amphitheaters, and more. He is also the founder and the director of the Song Leader Boot Camp. I attended that once, way back in the beginning when it first started. Um, and he was very, his mission is to turn people into song leaders, to help them to take Jewish music and spread it far and wide. Something else that you will see and hear is 613. They are a ground, how many have heard 613 before? Oh, yes, okay. So we're going to, they have, um, this is totally due to technology and the internet. They, uh, they are six men, strong Jewish identity, they create harmonies and everything is the human voice. There is no instrumental accompaniment to any of this. So let's listen to them. This is from YouTube, a video for them called a Lion King Passover. How appropriate. Uh -huh. <laughs> They have been, they are New York City based. They are, they have over, these videos have been viewed over 15 million times and they have seven award-winning albums that have landed them among the top Jewish music artists on iTunes and Spotify. iTunes and Spotify are the radio of today where we would have heard This Land is Your Land on the radio station back in the 80s even. Today we have iTunes and Spotify. So this is the, how we have changed from what was to now. Let's take a look at what influenced these. How did we get to that point? So 
Look, we're going to look at a case study of Debbie Friedman. She, the biggest thing I think that influenced people with her, besides the fact that she is just a force to be reckoned with, she was passionate, she wanted to be able to reach people in a way that had not been done before, was the popularity of the guitar, the creation of liturgical music in camps and youth, youth movements, the folk music revival, and music composition by non-cantors, the inclusion of congregations in singing, and the social revolutionary influences of the 1960s. So I'd like to read to you a paragraph about Debbie. Mount Zion Temple, St. Paul, Minnesota, the Friday night of Memorial Day weekend, May 26, 1972. Shortly after 8.15 p.m., 21-year-old song leader and songwriter Debbie Friedman began to strum her guitar from the pulpit. Unheard of up until that point. Debbie Friedman began to strum. Um, bassist Mark Leonard and drummer Bob Cohen joined her, supporting her chords with a contemporary sound that likely had never before echoed through the sanctuary, even after the Temple Youth Group service held the previous week. Behind her, dressed in black pants and skirts and white tops, the Highland Park Senior High School camarada began to sing in unison the music that they had been rehearsing in class for weeks. Sing unto God, sing a new song. Oh, sing praises to God, give thanks to him with a song. Oh, sing praises unto the Lord thy God. Debbie to do what she did. For one thing, she had attended in 1969 the Coots Camp Institute's program as a participant in the National Song and Dance Leadership. This was important. These programs had been started to, to reach people who were musical and to teach them how to be Jewish leaders and song leaders. Actually, this was even before the song leading movement. Then she went and spent six months in Israel living on a kibbutz. But upon her return, she returned to Kutz, this time as head song leader. She worked with people like, uh, who were her students, Jeff Klepper and Doug Mishkin. She worked a little bit with Michael Isaacson and Lazar Weiner, 
all people who were have become huge musical figures and influencers in today's world. This year, 1971, also corresponded with a significant change at her home congregation. These changes reflected a broader change within liberal Judaism at that time. The shift in worship from Ashkenazic Hebrew pronunciation to Sephardic form that connected more strongly with the Israeli youth and culture. The prayer music required adaptation since Sephardic Hebrew was pronounced differently than Ashkenazic with different emphasis on different syllables. We needed new music to adapt to the pronunciation changes and Debbie stepped into that role. Has that, did anybody ever see her perform live? I wanna show you this next clip, this next uh, video of her. It's a, it's a YouTube video of her performing live. And I just want you to watch and listen at her dynamic. She, she wasn't loud. She wasn't, she was just charismatic. So we're going to listen to this and watch. This is Miriam's song. Once they got across the other side, she picked up her timbrel in her hand. serving as song leader at UAHC's, now URJ's, Olin Sang Ruby Institute in Wisconsin, and she has had a profound influence on music, our contemporary music scene, even up until today. One of the things that she did was combine Hebrew with English, her Misha Berach prayer for, prayer, for example, the Shema and Ve'ahavta and Thou Shalt Love. About that, she talks about how she wrote, and you shall love, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. She said, a melody came into my head as I was sitting on a bus, and I didn't know what to do with the melody because I didn't feel comfortable in terms of being able to write lyrics. So I said it to the Ahavta, the thou shalt love prayer, and I taught it to a group of teenagers, and it worked for them. They were really able to get into it, and as I looked at them while they were singing it, they were standing with tears in their eyes and they were holding on to each other. And I realized that there was something happening, that there was a need that needed to be filled. And that's how I started. And she certainly has filled that need for many, many years. Okay, 
Now, that's one contemporary musical influence. This is the other, another huge one is technology. It is, um, technology and particularly the internet has changed, well, everything. How, let's brainstorm for a moment about what has changed due to advancements in technology and in particular, internet access. So what has changed? Those of us who can remember, I think all of us on this call can remember what it was like before the internet. What has changed? What, um, how have technological advances in creation, generation, and distribution impacted Jewish music and the Jewish community in profound ways? Talk. Well, it's given immediate access. Immediate access. Immediate access. You don't have to wait for Friday night services. That's true. That's the good. We don't have to immediate access. Anybody else? It's allowed what? us to share. It's what? It's allowed us to share on a more immediate basis. You know, um, you hear something, you see something, you can immediately, within moments, just like this, reach out to any number of people and, and share what you've heard um, and, and let or, them know and, and everything. Yeah, exactly, Roz. Not only share what you've heard, but share what you've written, share what you just sang. That has been one of the greatest changes. You didn't need talent scouts anymore to find you if you were an up and coming songwriter or performer. Many of today's superstars in music got their start by putting it on, the, on YouTube. And somebody heard it and it went viral and it changed. And that has been pretty much one of the biggest things, I think. Anybody else? Okay, I will do a couple. I'll tell you some. Those are some good things. What about the bad? The internet hasn't been all good. While huge segments of the public are hailing the internet era for making music easier and cheaper to obtain, the downside is the music business is struggling to generate enough revenue because of the new technology. Most of the people paid in making music are paid through royalties. But guess what? Those royalties do not come to them if it is stolen, copied, shared amongst friends. Your composer isn't going to be paid or your performer isn't going to be paid. Um, remember, what was the one it was called? It was here. Napster. Remember Napster, where you could just listen to anything? Nobody got paid when those, those songs were being downloaded and shared amongst people. So music, while some, that some people would say that the music industry is, it's okay, they were being paid too much anyway. Your everyday writers, I guarantee Debbie Friedman wasn't being paid a whole lot. Craig Talman wasn't being paid a whole lot. So this is the way they make their money. And if anybody's ever put a song on iTunes, Spotify, one of those, they're paid pennies. You wanna hope that a million people download your song and then you might be able to make some money. But if only a hundred people 
it's only a few dollars. So it's not as lucrative as one might think. That's probably one of the downsides. So why is that important? Let's take a look. Uh, okay. All right, our next, who's heard of the Maccabees? Back in 2010, only 10 years ago, this music video that I'm going to play for you appeared on the internet. It went viral. People went nuts over it. This is called Candlelight. And if you haven't seen it, you're going to really enjoy. Nothing like this had ever been posted on YouTube before. So here we go, Candlelight by the Maccabees. I'll tell a tale, 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 yeah. Of Maccabees in Israel, L, 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 yeah. When the Greeks tried to assail, sell, 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 yeah. But it was all to no avail, vel, 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 yeah, yeah. The war went on and on and on until the mighty Greeks were gone, yeah. I put my lockers in the air sometimes, saying, Thought, are they for real, 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 real? Those Maccabees, they never yield, 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 yield. They charged ahead with sword and shield, 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 shield. Yeah, yeah, the war went on and on and on until the mighty Greeks were gone. Yeah, I'll my lockers in the air sometimes, saying, hey, oh, spin the dreidel. No, you've never seen that? Uh, some people haven't? Oh my gosh, that was viral. I loved this when I saw it. It was like, oh my God, look at this. That had never been done before. Uh, who are these guys? They're all Orthodox. They all, um, i trying to think where they're based now. Hold on a second, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly where they're based. I have all these notes here. Just have to, let's see, the Maccabees. I think they're awesome. If you ever want to go on, online on YouTube and put in Maccabees, you will see some of the most amazing and hear some amazing things. You know, there was no musical accompaniment at all in that. That was all vocal. Every single drum beat, every single instrument you thought you were hearing was all vocal. And that's what has been amazing. Um, well, Pooh, 
Okay. What do you impact do you think this video had on our on the people, on the Jews, young kids? Say what, Fred? Oh, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. You have to unmute yourself. I'm sorry, I still can't hear you. You need to unmute yourself. It's not unmuting for some reason. I'm sorry. Anybody else want to say something about the Maccabees? Yeah, I think they, they elevated Jewish music to something contemporary that uh, not only the teenagers, but young adults, even you know older adults could relate to as taking it out of a synagogue setting and making being Jewish and having Jewish songs to celebrate and sing accessible. And cool. Yeah. I mean, everything that they did there, I've seen, you know, it's been 10 years, but I remember when I first saw this, I was like, wow, they are using normal kids or teenage or young adult gestures, uh, just being normal people. And it, it really, really connected with a lot of our younger kids at the time. And now those kids are in their 20s and their 30s, even in their 40s. And they are taking their kids and they want them to be more connected to Judaism as a result of something like this. This is not They're the from only New York. Huh? New York? They're from New York. Okay, good. Thank you. They have a wonderful website. They travel all over. The, in the group changes, the people have changed within it. I know a lot of cantors have, and musicians in general have said, well, why aren't there any women in this? And there are some groups that are both men and women, but for this Orthodox group, the men were the ones who were going to do this, and that's what they did. I have no issue with it. I think it was great. I have no problem. Another profound influence that we've had is, and I know many of you probably have never seen this, is Jewish rock radio. And this exists, and this was created by Rick Recht. And if you go to www.jewishrockradio.com, which I'm gonna do, um, can you still see my screen? Mm -hmm. You see the Jacob Spike Krause that I'm showing you here? Or do you still see the PowerPoint? Still see the PowerPoint. Okay, hold on a second. I, I'll new share. We're gonna share this. So this is Jewish Rock Radio, and you can, I don't think I've been able to get it to play on my machine for some reason, but this shows Charlie Kramer, who I've met. These are all new Jacob Spike Krause. We've done some of his music. Abby Strauss, Joe Buchanan, Robbie Sherwin. These are all people who are making music now in the Jewish world and whose songs we sing. Noah Aronson, who we sing a lot of his music now in the synagogue. So if you ever want to hear just what's out there as far as Jewish music goes, either contemporary or secular, non-secular, this is the place to go, Jewish Rock Radio. And it's 24-7. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's just JewishRockRadio.com. All right, let's go back to this. Okay, another one. This has actually... Uh, 
all of this technology has led to groups like the Jewish Songwriting Challenge on Facebook. This is a Facebook group where they invite people. You, you go and you want to join the group and then they'll ask you questions. Are you a Jewish songwriter? And if you are, then they will invite you in and you can write music. You can get people to listen to it, to look at it, give opinions back and forth. It's, it's like this wonderful class in a way of people that will help you with composing your Jewish music. So this is another thing and that would not be possible without the internet and Facebook. Then we have the Ruth Rubin legacy, which is very interesting and I did not know anything about this. And this is fascinating to me. Oops, not able to connect to it for some reason. This is, okay, hold a second, let me go back. This is um, a Yiddish, there are over 1900 Yiddish songs performed by some of the most extraordinary traditional singers in the 20th century. So she has collected an entire collection of this. And I think the legacy, this is probably her legacy that she started and, and funded. And it's the archive of, Jew, of Yiddish folk songs. So if you're interested in doing it, just search Ruth Rubin Sound Archive or the Ruth Rubin Legacy, and it will take you to there. And you can listen to a lot of Yiddish songs because this is one way we're keeping it alive. Now, that was technology. The third musical influence I want to talk about is Israel because Israel has been profound in the way our Jewish music is composed and the way we pray. One of the first musical influences was Naomi Shemer. And I think all of you would agree that her Yerushalayim Shel Zahav was, has become the second national anthem of Israel practically. She wrote this, um, hold a second. Hey. Ah. One second. Technology Israel. Okay. The fateful period before, during, and immediately following the Six Day War in June of 1967 jolted the American Jewish community from this universalistic agenda. The great hour has come, Cairo Radio announced on May 16, 1967. The battle has come in which we shall destroy Israel. Expelling the UN peacekeeping forces, Egypt blockaded the Strait of Tehran and hundreds of thousands of Arab troops massed on Israel's borders, promising to drive the Jews into the sea. Following three weeks of fear and trembling, war erupted early on June 5th, and in six days, the Arab armies were routed, leaving Israel in control of the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank of the Jordan River, the Golan Heights, and most importantly for all Jews, the old city of Jerusalem. Naomi Shimmer had written Yerushalayim Shel Zahav probably only weeks before the Six Day War. And once it came, once the Six Day War happened, it became, like I said, the second national anthem of Israel. <laughs> Shui 
So she wrote this for the song, Israeli Song Festival held on May 15th, 1967. And just three weeks later on June 5th, Israel took back the old city. So when she wrote this, it was never even in her imagination that we would actually be able to walk in the old city again. And so that's why I think this song became so important, not only to Israel, but to all a lot of American Jews as well. Another influence that cannot be denied is Rabbi, oops, oops, Rabbi Shlomo, Kar, Shlomo Karlbach. He was, and still is, oh, hold a second. There's been a lot of controversy around his music, but I cannot deny that his Hasidic style music and his charismatic presence has done, did so much for what we sing in the synagogue today. I begin this whole lesson with a nagoon, the Yai Lai Lai Lai, which in the 1950s was unheard of. But when he, who also wrote music for the Israeli Folk Festival, he started bringing in this idea of Lai Lai Lai, singing with your voice. The Hasidim, the Hasidim believe that the voice is the way to reach God. You don't need words. You can use uh, any lyrics you want, but Lai 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 is, is, helps to center the soul and helps connect you to God. And that whole idea of connecting to God through the power of the human voice is something that Shlomo Karlbach was instrumental in doing. He, hold on. I'm going to play for you a song I think all of you will, all of you will recognize as I look for a little bit more information to tell you about Shlomo Karlbach. <laughs> Shlomo Karlbach. Shlomo Karlbach began writing in the 1950s, and he would he would set verses of Tanakh to his own tunes. He entered some of his melodies into Israel's annual Hasidic song festival in 1969. This song we just heard, the Ha'ere Nenu, and it won first prize. 
And from there, people loved his music. He wrote Am Yisrael Chai, which we all know, Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael Chai. That belongs to him. Esa That's also Kalbach. So many of the melodies that are part of, especially the conservative synagogues, belong that came from Karlbach. He was also very charismatic. He would tell stories of the old Hasidic rabbis and relate them to people in their own day. And generally people loved him and worshiped him in many ways. But his music was undoubtedly, undoubtedly has influenced what we sing even today. Another person I wanted to talk about is Nurit Hirsch. I think all of you will recognize this song. entered that song into the Hasidic film, uh, music festival in 1969. It took third place. But this one has become part of everybody's, everybody knows Osei Shalom. And this is the one, this is, a, she's an Israeli writer, arranger and conductor. She's written over a thousand Hebrew songs. Also, Bishana Haba'ah, Bishana Haba'ah, That's also one of hers. That's also very, very popular. She, um, Yep, she still writes even today. So, and she's Israeli as well. So this is another way Israel has influenced us. One thing I wanna say at this point is we cannot forget the shlichim, the Israeli counselors, ambassadors who came over here from Israel to work with our children in religious school, in the camps, in the federations, in the preschools, to teach them the songs of Israel. Their work of bringing this was, remember, before the internet, their work of bringing that music and that culture over here to the U.S. is, is highly uh, profound. And it's thanks to them that we even know what the music of Israel is before, of course, the internet. Our next song from Israel is Achinoam Nini. We know her as Noah outside of, the, outside of Israel. She's an Israeli singer, and she's accompanied by guitarist Gildor, they often play, and she often plays the conga drum as she sings. She represented Israel at the Eurovision Song Contest in 2009, together with singer Mira Awad, with the song, There Must Be Another Way. She is actually Yemenite, and she moved to New York City at the age of two, and she has been singing and performing 
ever since she could. So this is going to be, let's listen to her sing. music that's been written with those very um, Eastern sounds and scales that we heard they went in places we didn't expect that were very much Middle Eastern. Wouldn't you agree from that music we just heard? Has anybody heard her before? My son was so funny. He's like, Mom, I can give you all of the contemporary, you know, Israeli rap songs that are going on right now. I'm like, it's okay, honey. Thank you. But this type of stuff, I mean, I remember Oprah Haza, um, which who I loved, and she would sing a lot of Yemenite music and other Hebrew music. I had no idea what she was saying, but I loved the sound. And this is the type of stuff that they listen to in Israel, and I think this is beautiful. All right, another influence. Let's see, who's next? Ah. Nava Tehila. Nava Tehila is unique. It's Jerusalem based and it is an organization for Jewish renewal. Their main focus is creating musical and engaging prayer spaces where people feel comfortable to come as they are. And of all of the influences in contemporary Israel now, this particular group and another group, um, Beit Israeli, also they are having the most profound influences on our Jewish liturgical music today. I've sung several of their pieces as like an Ose Shalom, you would recognize if you heard it. And their ability to sing and to reach people where they are and whatever state they're in to come worship and just pray is amazing. And if you ever get a chance to see them, go. They produce two albums of music for Shabbat and High Holiday Prayers, and they run a resource website that offers prayer leaders free access to sheet music and recordings of their new material, because I've accessed it and I've gotten a lot of music from them. They're egalitarian and inclusive. They welcome people of other religion, religions and spiritual but not religious people who want to pray and sing. 
Their prayer is experiential because Navatahila is constantly seeking ways of connection to the living God in each and every moment. So here is a video of them, and I hope you enjoy it. Of, what is it, Sim Shalom or just Shalom? Oops, wrong one. Oh, say Shalom, good. Was hoping that's what I did. temple. But that type of an experience, I think in a way that's what Rabbi Simon was hoping to accomplish with the contemporary band. Um, eventually we, we get there on some of them, but this is one we, that we definitely want to do. So those are the influences that have, those are the, the influences that have brought our music from the 1950s up through today. Does anybody have any comments? I'm going to stop the share. Oh, one more thing I wanted to thank is the Herb Alpert School of Music, the Milken Fund, because a lot of people who contributed to this particular class uh, was, was put out by UCLA, and they have put out several classes on music for us to teach to our congregants. So I hope you enjoyed this one. And I added some things to it, but a lot of this was from them. So I want to thank them for that. Now I'm going to stop my share. And now I'm going to go back here to you guys and open up. Now, everybody is unmuted. If I can unmute you, what do you think? It was great. Thank you. 
Now, any comments though about the music, about how it's changed? Do you like what's happened in our world? Do you wish it was back the way it used to be? I'm curious about those types of things. Comments. Uh, well, for, for me, um, we grew up conservative and we grew up in a synagogue where the cantor um, ruled the roost. I mean, he, he was a huge influence. And at that point in time, men were the only ones who were allowed to sing, even though we had a choir on Friday nights, we didn't sing much of anything except for a few prayers. So coming into a synagogue, um, specifically reformed, moving from conservative to reform, where music seems very integral in, in the worship service, in celebrations, in just everything. It's, it's comforting, it's welcoming, and it's embracing, letting us embrace the religion, not only through a Friday night service, but regular on, on a daily basis. I think bringing the contemporary music, one of the things a lot of organizations have a problem with, especially religious organizations, are recruiting younger people. We have, as we all know, we're aging. We have an older congregation. Our congregation is great the way we have our preschool and our Sunday school and encourages young people. But I think the music and making the service accessible and to their liking or to their understanding, more or less, it's where they can understand and uh, it's their age group mm -hmm. uh, is going to encourage continuing our congregation and others. Good. Thank you, Robert. I agree with you on that. It does encourage the younger people. What about you? You personally, do you enjoy, did you enjoy a lot of this music? Do you like some of the contemporary music that we sing today? Do you wish we could go back and sing some of the other stuff? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we like it all. <laughs> Some of it, the other things, older things are, are wonderful. But I would not want to go back to the choir doing all the music yeah. no, and the cantor no, doing no. all the music and nobody singing along. No. 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 When I came in 1984, it was the old style service, the old style choir, and then we changed, and I like the mixture of both the old and the new, yeah. and I like basically everything we do, I like the band, I like the choir that we have now, it just really is um, a very, very nice mix. I like, I have to say I like it too, I always try to mix and match with the music, if I hear something that I think would be great for our congregation, I have to I want to bring it in. Sometimes I like, oh, this won't work except in like an experiential setting like Nava Tehila. Boy, I'd love to be able to create something like that. That would be so awesome. But that would have to be outside in a very relaxed setting where people could just come and hang out and be who they are. And that's what I think that's the vision Rabbi Simon has for Saturday morning, come as you are Shabbat. Which by the way, we're doing every Saturday online. You're welcome yeah. to come and join. It does. It's nice. Does anybody else have any comments? Thoughts? Suggestions? Can you hear me? 
Yeah. yeah, I can hear you. I, I like the mixture of old and new, and I, I, sh I chaperone a lot of the nifty things uh, that are away so that, you know, they have enough adults for all the kids to go. So I, I love the contemporary camp music and all of that stuff. But I want to point out that um, even though I listen to what's on the radio today, I still like me a good Moon River and Smile, and I listen to the oldies <laughs> remade by the newbies, and and I love that. And one thing is that might be missing from today's young people's experience is you don't ever hear a song like Otere or or Senat anymore. You, you don't hear them, and I think they need to know those too. I think it's that broad spectrum that um, is not only important from a knowledge and en enjoyment perspective, but also I think. Um, where they're taking music, they need to know where it's been. So they need to know the old stuff too. Yeah. To have the influence, just like Beethoven and Mozart continue to inspire, you know? Right. And that's what they, that's what they teach in, in, if you were going to major in music, they do teach that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they would do it to share people, tell people what they, mm -hmm. what they, uh, where it came from, what they had. Well, it has been a pleasure, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the class. I hope you, you. see how it's Thank developed. And next time I, I sing or do something or something is done from the BIMA that you recognize or you would say, oh, I know where that's from. Make sure to come up to me afterward and tell me. I actually Thank am you. so excited to be able to attend a lunch and learn because I can't make it from the lutes out there and back and, and I was able to learn on a lunch hour today. So thank I you. would not oh, be surprised. Too. Yeah, I would not be surprised that when we all are back in the synagogue that we'll probably still offer these things via Zoom. Not surprised at all. That would be good. That would be nice. And if you want to learn to read Hebrew, I'm teaching a learn to read Hebrew class tonight at 7 and Thursday morning at 10. It's not too late to join. Just show up or go there, go on the website, click the link and come join me. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Good to see my choir buddies. Thank I know. Thank you, right? everybody. <laughs> Bye everybody. Be safe. Bye.